All right. I'm Greg Johnson. Ask me anything. I have a number of questions here already. Some of them have been sitting around for a while. Some are quite recent and fresh. So the first question I have is from Mary Lou. And Mary Lou wrote specifically this. Let me read it exactly because I think she wants me to read it exactly. What, Greg, what did you feel when you saw the image of the Lee statue melting? Okay, well, what did I feel? I felt anger and hatred, which is why that image was shown. That, that image was shown to provoke anger and hatred. I think it was also shown because they wanted to demoralize people, perhaps rub it in. I don't think that the net effect of this is to demoralize people. I think the net effect of this is to wake a lot of people up and get them really steaming mad, really angry. And that's why, although I felt anger and hatred, I very quickly after that had this cold calculating side, this thoughts came, came to mind that this is actually a good thing for whites. It makes very real and visceral our enemies' reckless hatred for us and their will to destroy. And first they destroy us in effigy, but ultimately they want to destroy us in the flesh. And it's very, very hard to avoid that when you see this uh, shocking and heartbreaking image and you see the malicious glee that this is put forward with. So I think the net effect is going to wake up a lot more people. I think a lot more people will fight back. This is white erasure. This is the great replacement. It's happening. They thought they could demoralize us, but they're terribly mistaken. These people are, are just dumb to do this. It should have been done in the dead of night without the gloating and the triumphalism. Or better yet, it shouldn't have been done at all. But you can't expect these people to do things right. They're giddy, vicious children. They don't have self-control. They don't have breaks. They lack the higher functions of rational consciousness. And that's what's going to defeat them. Uh, and so I think this was a great own goal on their part. It was a great mistake. And we're going to exploit this absolutely to the hilt. I also want to uh, recommend that everybody read David Zuddy's article at Countercurrents, well, We Can Have Nice Things Again. It's an article about Hungary. It's an article about a monument in Budapest to the people who put down communism in 1919. And that monument was destroyed, of course, when the communists came sweeping back in in 1944-1945, and that monument was recreated a few years ago by the Orban government. The Orban government also recreated this uh, magnificent monument to Ishvan Tisa next to the parliament building that had also been destroyed by the communists after the war, and a magnificent sculptural group uh, dedicated to the heroes of the 1849 revolution which again had been destroyed after the war. These monuments were photographed in, uh, they were documented 
It was easy to re recreate them. In many cases, some parts of the monuments were preserved. And so between reassembling the parts and recreating the parts that were destroyed, they showed that iconoclasm, politically motivated iconoclasm, can be overturned and we can have nice things again. And my view is that the destruction of this Lee monument is temporary. So they're going to make something else out of that metal. And someday we're going to take whatever bronze dog turds that they create out of it, right? you know, something like a Henry Moore sculpture, probably even less interesting than that. They'll, they'll just create some modern abomination. We'll take that. We'll put it in a furnace. We'll melt it down and we'll recreate General Lee, and we'll put it back up in that same park in Charlottesville. And the, the people who seethed and raged against that can seethe and rage again from thousands of miles away in their own homeland. This kind of thing would never have happened if black and white people in North America had their own countries. Always bear that in mind. Every time there's a racial atrocity, and I don't just mean a murder or a rape, but also a racially motivated atrocity like this, that if white people had a country of our own, none of this would have happened. So those are my thoughts on the destruction of the Lee statue. It was put out there. It was publicized to make us angry and to make us feel hatred. And we need to take that anger and hatred, not internalize it, where it becomes bitterness and basically debilitates us. We need to take it, store it, use it as fuel, use this image to red pill more people, wake them up, radicalize them, polarize, agitate, agitate until we finally win. I also have to comment on one of the reactions to this uh, atrocity that was also basically designed simply to provoke anger and hatred. And boy, did it succeed. Uh, it's Richard Spencer's tweet where he says that this is a good thing. Yeah, well, uh, Richard Spencer is a malevolent narcissist. Richard Spencer was dreaming that someday, perhaps as a result of Unite the Right, that people would make statues of him. Of course, that's never going to happen. He's a laughing stock. He's a lol cow. He's just a turd of a human being. And he gets off by basically just saying obnoxious things like this that make people righteously angry. And he succeeded again. He's the spiritual equivalent of the people who put Lee in the furnace. And these people are despicable. And historically speaking, they will just be swept away by the restoration of a better society, which is what we stand for. All righty. So are there other questions here? Let's see. Uh, General Lee, General Lee went through his life doing what he thought was right. He had a great sense of duty. He was a great man. He wasn't dreaming of statues being erected to him. He was just doing his duty. There's a world of difference between a narcissist prancing on the stage of history and imagining how people are going to venerate him 
in, in centuries hence, and the kind of person who actually accomplishes something great and worthy of veneration. These people are generally not motivated by vanity. They're motivated by duty. And I think Lee is a, a magnificent example of that. So let's go over to entropy and click. All right. There are several comments here. Shanks writes in with 15 US dollars. Thanks for being a somewhat rare voice of sanity, re-Russian, Ukraine, and Anglophone pro-white nationalism. Most other prominent speakers range from disappointing to outright ghoulish and disgusting. Thank you very much. I've, I've held my views on this for quite some time. And I think uh, my views are essentially correct. I haven't seen any better opinions come along to unhorse them. And so I stick by what I've said. Absinthe Dreams writes in with five US dollars. Thank you very much. It's very kind. I've been considering grad school for years, but the more I think about it, publishing seems like something I'd like to do either way. What advice would you give to someone with only a bachelor's degree on where to start? or if more schools worth it? That's a really interesting question. I have a PhD and I had a very brief and unsatisfying academic career. Then I got out of that and I got into movement publishing basically. And I've been doing that for more than 16 years. First I started working with the Occidental Quarterly and then I founded Countercurrents and that's been going for more than 13 years now. It's hard to get into this sphere, but the sphere is growing. And I can completely sympathize with the desire not to go to graduate school. Graduate school, however, was extremely helpful to me. If you can go to graduate school without incurring a lot of debts, and if you can hold your nose and be around a lot of really awful people, and I imagine they've only become much worse in the more than 20 years since I've been out of graduate school. Do it. I think you should try it because there's something that you get from higher education that you don't get from being an autodidact. And that is a certain rigor in your ability to argue and a certain self-confidence that comes from mastering a lot of this material. I know a lot of very, very intelligent autodidacts, but I also notice that their, their work lacks a certain rigor and they lack a certain intellectual self-confidence that cripples their ability sometimes, not always, but sometimes actually impedes their ability to have an impact, impedes their ability to push their work out there. And so I think it's a very valuable thing to go through the discipline of higher education, the discipline of graduate school. It will require you to study foreign languages that you might not otherwise study. It will require you to read authors that you might not otherwise read, but are good to have read. Now, of course, a lot of the reading lists and seminars and things today are extremely dumbed down. That's why you have to be very careful about the school you go to. However, if you're going to go to a school without the hope, really, of getting an academic job, then you can just choose 
a program that is as traditionalist as you can find, that has the most traditionalist reading list, that has the most substantive course offerings, and just go there. You don't have to find a place that necessarily has a lot of big name scholars, because a lot of the big names today are idiots peddling politically correct nonsense anyway, or they're just, you know, really dry nerds who are just basically repackaging their dissertation research for, for decades. And it's a very, very narrow and they're just chasing their own tails. Try and find people who really love their work, who love the ideas. Sometimes they're not people who publish a lot because the game of academic publishing is deadening and it's very cynical oftentimes. And some of the, sometimes the best people don't really get into it all that much. So my inclination is for you not to be too dismissive of graduate school, even if you don't think that you want to go into academia. If you, even if you think that you want to go into business, it still provides something. That said, I have said on a number of occasions that if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't go to graduate school. But I've said that on the assumption that if knowing what I know now, I wouldn't go to graduate school again. But of course, knowing what I know now, a lot of what I know now is stuff that I only got through graduate school. And I might not have gotten that and, and might have terribly missed it if I hadn't gone through it. Now, there's a lot of bullshit that I went through. There are a lot of things that I read while I was in graduate school that I will never read again. And I wish that I got, I could get back every minute that I spent reading people like Foucault and Derrida. I wasn't even forced to do that. It was just sort of in the air and people were talking about it. And I thought, oh, I should read this. It's, it's fashionable. And, uh, might be interesting. And there's a lot of stuff that you will regret perhaps encountering, but that's sort of part of the, part of the hazing, if you will. And the fact that you have read this, this stuff gives you a certain amount of self-confidence and perspective that you wouldn't have if you hadn't read it. I feel very self-confident in dismissing a lot of, of authors that I haven't read, if I hadn't read them and I hadn't encountered them, I wouldn't feel confident in dismissing them. So there's some benefits uh, to wasting your time on even bad writers. And you're never going to get through life without some of your time being wasted. You're never going to get through life without making certain mistakes anyway. So Perhaps if you want to go into publishing, it's still worthwhile to get some kind of advanced degree. I don't know exactly what degree you're contemplating. Certainly the offerings vary from department to department, from discipline to discipline, obviously. Literary studies, social science, all of these are really terrible places. Most of the humanities are really terrible places. The best thing I would recommend is, is to study, if you want to study humanities, do it in as traditionalist a university as you can. And there are certain universities like that that are still holding on. And if you want to talk to me in more detail about this, just email me at editor at counter-currents.com, counter-currents.com. So thanks for that. I think you got your $5 worth. So... This is a question from uh, 
our Spanish contributor. If you were a grassroots activist with regular skills and you had a benefactor who didn't want to expose himself but would be willing to fund you in any form of activism you propose to him, what kind of activism would you do? And then he modified that and said, I've changed in my question the part of a salary to an unlimited funding of the activity. That's more interesting. If I were a grassroots activist and I could get unlimited funding for an activity, what would I do? Well, I'd be doing what I'm doing now mostly, but I'd expand it. If I had unlimited funds, wow, the mind reels, unlimited. Okay. Uh, my, my ambitions are growing with each passing second as I, as I contemplate this. Well, let's, let's just go to a question that I answered before. Years ago, the thought crossed my mind. What if somebody asked you, Greg, what would you do with a million dollars? And they had a million dollars and they're willing to give it. Surely you should have a good answer for that question. Otherwise, you're not very serious, right? You should have an answer to a question like that. And what I basically said is that I would create a back office for the movement. I would create a fully staffed office with an office manager, with somebody who does fundraising professionally, with an IT person who's a professional, with a person who can do graphic design, who can make great memes and great book covers and great posters, great, great anything, right? I would, it would be great to have a really good designer. And then what you, I would do is I'd share that office with lots of very high quality content creators who are dogged, who are bogged down by trivial things like putting orders in the mail. We'd have a, a mail room with order fulfillment. We'd have a warehouse full of books and t-shirts and stuff like that. That's the kind of thing that I think would be great to have. Provide the people who are doing the best work with a common infrastructure that allows them to be much more productive and not dividing their time with administrative trivia, with minutiae. And I've known people who have been knocked out of the game because they, they couldn't keep up on things like tax filings, bureaucratic deadlines, things like that. They've been knocked out of the game because they were so focused on actually doing something for the cause. And we don't want that to happen. If somebody is doing quality work, we want to be able to provide them with a back office that can support them and make them much more productive and also sustain them over the long term. That's something I would do if I had like a million bucks. Other stuff that I would do definitely is I'd fund countercurrents a lot more because, well, we're trying to do fundraising and we're way behind. We are about 36% of the way to our goal of $300,000 this year. And Half of all fundraising takes place in the last quarter. We're almost to the last two months of the year. We're to the last sixth of the year, not quarter, but sixth of the year. And we're only a little more than a third of the way to our goal. We would be very lucky if we doubled what we have, if we got to 
say 70% of the goal at this point. I don't like to be negative, but that's just true. There are not some major donors ready to swoop in and save us because I've talked to all those people, the ones that I can still talk to, some have just disappeared and they're not coming to save us. We are going to be saved by smaller donors and new donors, which brings me to this matching grant. So if you want to be a new donor and help out, if you want to come to the rescue, your, your donation would be matched up to $1,000. And I announced this almost two weeks ago, and we haven't had any new donors pop up in that period of time. It's kind of shocking. It's kind of uh, sobering. But yeah, I would definitely put a lot more money into countercurrents so we can pay more authors. We can pay translators to translate books and things like that. I would also put a lot of money into the Homeland Institute. Why? Because we need to have an actual public policy institute. I created the Homeland Institute. It's been going for more than a year now. We have been doing good work. We published two polls. We've published a number of articles. We're preparing to launch our third poll, which will be on national divorce, secession, and political polarization. I think that's a very important project. So those are the sorts of things that if I had essentially unlimited funds, I would turn the, that money hose in, the, in those directions, support countercurrents, support the Homeland Institute, and if countercurrents in the Homeland Institute are running and flourishing, that back office idea for the movement will gel out of that eventually as well. If it takes bringing more and more content creators over to countercurrents and giving them salaries and things like that, that might be the, the form that it takes. But we do have a back office that are doing good work. I'd like to keep them doing that good work. And I'd like to expand rather than shrink in the new year. And we're actually facing shrinking in the new year. And we're not the only ones doing this. It's happening movement-wide and it's happening outside the movement as well. There are a lot of organizations that are facing cutbacks because they depend on fundraising and fundraising is way, way down at the present point. And it has to do with the global economic recession. Ultimately, it's long COVID, put it that way. We're all suffering from a very, very long, not COVID infection, but a COVID hysteria that is manifesting itself in a global economic recession. They won't admit, they won't even admit in the United States that we have a recession. They'll, they'll probably admit it in the first quarter of next year. But We've been seeing the recession at countercurrents all year long. So yeah, that's what I do. That's a very good question. Thank you very much for that. Peasant tier donor, thanks for all the efforts at countercurrents. Uh, rad dad. Well, thank you very much. And if you're a first time donor, we'll double that. I very much appreciate it. So thank you. Okay, $10 from the rules of reality apply. I think the tranny thing is a psyop. It further breaks why it's the one victim suit that grants them entry into Satan's lair. It also, Squid Inc., it is also Squid Inc. that drains conservative energy and distracts from the anti-white foundation of their project. It's diabolical, double plus diabolical. Well, there's no question that promoting this heavily is 
you know, people are up to no good. There is something absolutely ghoulish and diabolical about this. A great number of people are being gaslighted into permanently mutilating themselves and to destroying their reproductive potential. That's evil. There's no question about it. And honestly, I would just make it against the law. And I would, uh, I would strip the medical license of any doctor who engages in this activity. I think that people who genuinely have, if, if it's even real, right? If it's even real, if people are actually suffering from body dysmorphia or whatever these things are, if it's even real, they should be encouraged to do other sorts of treatments rather than things that permanently alter and disfigure them. And it, it should simply not be allowed. And I've said this for many, many years. I wrote a piece called Confessions of a Transphobic many years ago. I think it was back in 2014. And I, I stand by it. And the phenomenon has only metastasized alarmingly. Uh, and I do not believe that there were millions and millions or hundreds of thousands of repressed transsexuals out there who were just waiting for the freedom to become who they are. I think that what this is, is a mimetic plague. Uh, it's a form of gaslighting that is basically, it's evil. It's a kind of evil cult. That's how it works. And evil cults need to be suppressed and permanent mutilation should not be, with a suicide rate of 40%, should not be serious, a serious medical treatment for whatever ails these people. No other medical treatment, psychological treatment that has a 40% suicide rate would ever be contemplated. But we're supposed to accept transsexualism as, as, a, as, a, as a legitimate treatment for a psychological issue. And I just don't think that it, it passes muster. So that's a, that's a good question. Thank you for the $10. And again, if you're a first-time donor, we're going, to, we're going to double that. So I really appreciate it. Doritos Locos Tacos, do you still keep in touch with the TRS guys, Greg? No, sorry. Haven't been in touch with them basically since May of 2017. There have been a couple of online interactions, but they didn't go well. Okay, Russia Boy 678. If Europe has low birth rates, the solution could just be to grow people in machines rather than rely on natural births. What are your thoughts? Well, that seems rather dystopian. However, I would do anything to turn around our demographic crisis. Absolutely anything, including something like that. So yeah, I would definitely contemplate that. I think more people need to contemplate surrogacy. There was a, a woman, I believe she's, a, she's in Turkey. And she went to the Republic of Georgia, which is even cheaper apparently than Turkey, and hired like 20 women to be surrogates and had them all implanted with her fertilized eggs. Uh, she and her husband got together and fertilized a bunch of eggs and implanted them all in these surrogates. And she had 20 kids all in one stroke. And she was planning to do more, but then her husband got thrown in jail because apparently he's some kind of criminal. That I thought was kind of astonishing. 
if the, if people have the money and the will to reproduce their genes and horrific things like this, it's not, it's not that horrific, not, not compared to say dying in, in a, you know, phosphorus attack in Gaza or something like that. It's not that horrific. It's just kind of distasteful and weird. If we can get over the distasteful and weird quality of paying women to basically bury your children, why not do six at a time, right? And really get those numbers up. Why be conventional? Why pay, pay for a surrogate every two years, right? Pay for six surrogates at once, you know, and then a couple of years later, if you want to go back and get, you know, have an even dozen do that again. There are a lot of things you can do once you throw taste and how to put it. I'll, let's say, I'll say throw taste and tradition to the winds, but we might have to contemplate things like this if we're going to turn this around. Our race is going through a huge genetic bottleneck. There's no question about it. And the white people of the future will be different from the white people of today. Why? Because a lot of the white people of today will have no offspring in the future. We're going through a genetic bottleneck comparable to the Black Death. And unlike the Black Death, this is entirely created by social policies, by a hostile culture, by hostile cultural elites, by just ghastly mistakes like the uh, you know, overly urbanized consumer civilization. Even without hostile elites trying to drive us to extinction, we would still have massive fertility problems because of urbanization. It doesn't matter what race you are, what religion you are, what social system you are. Urbanization and consumerism predict dr dramatic fertility declines. So we, we are going through a bottleneck and the future is going to be, there's going to be a different white race. And I, I've said this in the past, we, we need to think of ourselves as the white people with a future. Our tribe, our movement is the white people who choose to have a future. The rest of them are white people who choose not to have a future or who don't think about it and might sleepwalk into extinction because they just go along with the insane incentives that our society puts out there. We want to save all of our people. We represent the interests of all of our people, but realistically, we know we won't. And the white people with the future have to contemplate really radical measures to be white people with the future. So yeah, if we can't get the family thing in order, we might have to contemplate things like this. Machines are, well, that's way off in the distance, but surrogates are real. Surrogates happen today. And you can go to places where people have very low standards of living and hire a surrogate for a lot less than you'll be paying for a nanny in the in the first world or the second world, whatever. Is there a second world still? I guess there's sort of the first world and then the parts of the you know former communist countries in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah, so that's a truly remarkable question. Thank you for that. I hope I haven't creeped out too many of my listeners.
Slog has just donated 14 lemons. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate that. David Zuddy writes in anti-space is, is code for anti-white. I, I do agree with that. That's a good one. The great arena for Faustian man is space exploration and colonization. We are always striving towards the infinite. I recommend the piece that I wrote about Frank Herbert, actually. We put it up earlier this month. It was a talk that I gave in Dallas, Texas, Dallas-Fort Worth, to a countercurrents gathering there. And I think Frank Herbert is a great visionary. And he's had more influence on my thinking about politics than any other novelist. I wish more people were influenced by Frank Herbert than by Ayn Rand. That would be a great world. I would fear less for the future if more people were influenced in their politics by Frank Herbert than by Ayn Rand's novels. What are Greg's thoughts on revenge? This is Friedrich. Well, you know, that's a good question. What are my thoughts on revenge? First of all, revenge is one of the great motives in drama, in literature. It's important. It's powerful. However, I don't think it's all that necessary or, well, let me rephrase that. I don't think it's necessarily that healthy to dream of revenge. I think it's healthier to just let things go more often. And uh, that would, you know, basically get rid of a lot of great classic drama. Uh, you know, if people are horribly offended and terrible injustices are done to them and they say, well, you know, I'm just going to get over this and put it behind me and go back to living my life. I don't want to become embittered. I don't want to constantly be imprisoned by the past. I don't want to be constantly fantasizing about getting revenge. I just want to get on with my life. That's the healthy thing to do. And that's why, you know, you can criticize the metaphysics of Christianity, but the idea of forgiving and getting over things is not a bad thing, especially when you realize that Jesus was preaching to Jews who especially need that because these are the never forget, never forgive people, right? These are the people who can hold a grudge longer than anybody else. And these are the people who burn with resentment and bitterness and have mastered the way of transferring it to their children and grandchildren. And yet we're the ones who are responsible for their trauma somehow. Anyway, it can be devastating psychologically to become embittered by past injustices that you have suffered. And the best way to avoid that embitterment, the best way is to live in a society where you get justice, right? And this is why I, I wrote a piece on the groupie question in white nationalism, where I talked about the cases of a couple of women who basically turned Antifa. Why did they do it? Because they became embittered. Why did they become embittered? Because they were mistreated. They were mistreated. Everybody gets mistreated, right? It just happens. But why did they get embittered? 
after they were mistreated because nobody came to their defense. Because within our movement, people did not rush to give justice to people who were aggrieved, who were mistreated. And that led to bitterness and that led to some very, very bad doxing incidents. So the best solution to embitterment is to avoid it. And the way to avoid it, it's ultimately not in your power generally to avoid it, but it is in the power of society at large to avoid it. And the way that the society at large avoids toxic embitterment, eating your heart out over injustice is to give you justice. That's what a good society does. And that's what a healthy movement would do. Give people justice. And it would also call out the sorts of sociopathic people who do injustice and prey upon people. That's what should be done. So the solution to revenge is not to need revenge by getting justice done for the crimes committed against you, for the offenses committed against you. If justice is done, you don't have to become embittered. You don't have to dream of revenge and you don't have to do it yourself. So, and, and really it's better that way. It's better that way because objectivity and subjectivity are issues, right? You are not necessarily the best judge in your own case. Therefore, if somebody mistreats you and you go about getting justice, as often as not, you're going to commit injustices in the process. That's why we have impartial justice. That's why we have a justice system. That's why we go to other people and ask them for help when we've been wronged. So revenge is, is not a good thing. It's not something that should be necessary if you have a society or a movement, which is a sort of society in, in microcosm, right? A society in, in the process of forming or maybe never forming. If you have justice from society, then revenge is not necessary. People having to seek revenge for the wrongs that have been done them is a sign that they live less in a civil society than in a state of nature. Now, this brings to mind a movie that I'm going to be talking about in a couple of days. On Monday, the 30th, I'm going to be on Frodi Midyard's Decameron Film Festival, and I'm going to be talking about Sergio Leone's masterpiece, Once Upon a Time in the West. That is a fascinating drama driven by revenge. But of course, it's a revenge drama because it takes place in the Wild West. It takes place in a society that's on the cusp of civilization, a society that's emerging from the state of nature where you can't get justice from your fellow men or from the system. And so people pursue vengeance. And the vengeance that's pursued in this movie is epic. It's awe-inspiring. But it's also obviously, how to put it, destructive of the soul 
of the person who's pursuing that vengeance. But when you see the horror that's been visited upon this man, you understand why, and it's absolutely gut-wrenching. In fact, the movie is so gut-wrenching that I only watched it once in my life. And I've never been able to bring myself to watch it again because it's just too emotionally powerful. So tomorrow I have to rewatch this movie. <laughs> and uh, for the second time in my life, and I fully admit that it's one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. It has some flaws to it. There's no question about it. I've watched bits and pieces of it over the years since then, but I've never been able to subject myself to the whole thing. It is an absolutely magnificent example of what great drama revenge can motivate, but it's not the kind of thing that you want in a well-ordered society. Friedrich writes, I'm really sorry I'm not a billionaire in this particular case. Friedrich, you've been very generous. And the standard answer that I have to people who say, I wish I were a billionaire, I wish I were a multimillionaire, I wish I could do more, is simply to say, if everybody did what they can, we would have no problems. If everybody did what they can, our movement would be enormously well-funded and many, many good things would be happening that are not happening because we just don't have the money and manpower and professionalism that we could have. So yeah, don't mourn the fact that you're not as rich as Elon Musk. The whole planet isn't as rich as Elon Musk. We're, we're all in that boat together. Don't mourn the fact that you're not a millionaire or billionaire. The only thing that you should mourn is if you're not giving what you can, you know, or uh, don't feel ashamed if you're not a billionaire or a millionaire. Feel ashamed if you're not doing what you can, because if everybody is doing what he can, again, we would be very well funded and we would have no worries. And in fact, we'd be so much further ahead as a movement than we are today. James Kirkpatrick says, great point about Jesus preaching to Jews. I really think one has to understand the ethics of Jesus by looking at his audience. The turn the other cheek stuff. The love thy enemy stuff. The forgiveness stuff. That is directed at people who are notoriously vengeful and eaten up by revenge, people with notoriously long memories, people who are embittered, and they need to get over it somehow. This is why I think Christianity is such a bad fit for Europe. Because these beatitudes and these values preached by Jesus about turning the other cheek and uh, forgiveness, etc., these are not good fits for white people because white people tend to be more willing to overlook the overlook slights, more willing to put things behind us anyway. And therefore, the extreme forms in which Jesus preaches these virtues is really directed at a particularly, I don't know, vengeful population. And so Aristotle talks about this in the Nicomachean Ethics, he says that 
every virtue is accompanied by two vices. There's a vice of excess and a vice of defect. So for instance, if the virtue is courage, the vice of excess would be foolhardiness and the vice of defect would be cowardice. And he says, what do you do if you tend towards one vice and you want to get to the virtue? He says, you aim at the opposite vice. Just as the archer aims high above the target, knowing that gravity will bring the arrow down. So you have to aim a little higher to offset the, the force of gravity. If you have a tendency to be cowardly, for instance, and you want to be courageous, you have to aim at the opposite extreme of foolhardiness because there's a sort of gravity of your cowardice right? That's going to countervail that. And what you might end up hitting is the virtue, the mean, which is courage. Now, if you're a person who has a tendency towards being wrathful and embittered and spiteful, and you want to get to a more healthy mentality, somebody might recommend that you aim for the opposite extreme. Love your enemies. If somebody smites you on one cheek, turn the other cheek and let them smite you, right? Rather than being honorable, honor-driven and smiting them back, right? That, might, that advice might be for people who are inclined towards an extreme vice that Europeans are constitutionally not inclined towards, and therefore it might be bad advice for Europeans, but it's been universalized. It's, it's been treated, turned into a universal religion, a universal religion of salvation for all mankind. And it might actually not fit all mankind. It might be bad for all mankind, but you might be able to understand why Jesus preaches these really cuckish virtues to Jews who could maybe use a little of that medicine because they're so wrathful and spiteful and vengeful and it's, it's bad for their souls. So those are my thoughts. Ah, we have a couple more questions at Entropy. Friedrich writes in with 20 US dollars. Greetings, I have two questions. What do you think is a chance of another world war? I read your articles about the book National Populism, but could you please elaborate a bit more on it? Best of everything. Okay, those are big questions. What do you think is a chance of another world war? I think the chance of another world war increases with each passing day. And the reason why that increases is that the post-World War II Pax Americana is coming apart. And what happens when great hegemonic powers start failing is that all kinds of little conflicts which were suppressed and sometimes incredibly petty and insane conflicts in places that you never even heard of, right, start popping up. Those can lead to larger and larger conflicts. Think about the Balkans in 1914. A small conflict basically between Serbia and Serbs and the Austro-Hungarian Empire 
really in territory that had been evacuated by the Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire was failing and other powers were trying to get in to where it was getting out of. Because of that, the world sleepwalked into the First World War, a world conflagration. That can happen again. And so as much as we hate the American empire, we might miss it when it's gone because we're going to see conflicts popping up all over that are absolutely horrendous. And the best thing that we can hope for is those conflicts will be contained, just contained horrendous cankers on the surface of the earth rather than things that spread until the entire world is is engulfed. So as for the national populism book, gosh, if you read my articles on it, you've you basically got all my thoughts. I mean, I can't really add much more to that. I do have a piece called In Defense of Populism at Countercurrents. I think it was going to be made a Classics Corner article this week. Was certainly recommended to me to make it such. That goes a little further than my thoughts on the National Populism book. So maybe I would recommend you look at that. Aaron writes in with 20 US dollars. Thank you very much. Your thoughts on Derek Chauvin's possible acquittal by the Supreme Court. I would love that. I wrote an article about the Chauvin verdict called Verdict on America. I'm kind of proud of it. I was very angry when I wrote it. It was a terrible injustice what they did to Derek Chauvin. And he deserves to be pardoned. Absolutely. I wish a presidential candidate would be asked, will you pardon Derek Chauvin? I would love it if President Trump were to actually run on something like that. That'd be fascinating. It seems unlikely. After all, Derek Chauvin is, was not a, uh, a Jewish swindler or a rapper. So I don't think he would merit a pardon by Donald Trump, even if Donald Trump got another term in office. But if I, if, if I became president of the United States, I would pardon Derek Chauvin as the first act because it's such a massive injustice. And I do hope that the Supreme Court can uh, overturn it. It was obviously a complete violation of due process when you had presidential candidates and sitting senators and Congress people pronouncing that they believed he was guilty and the media saying, oh, if he's not found guilty, cities will burn as if they had, and we've certainly seen a lot of cities burning. It was a total violation of due process, but the man shouldn't have been put on trial in the first place. He obviously did nothing wrong. Derek Chauvin did nothing wrong. And if BLM has taught us anything, it's that the knee of order needs to be on the neck of chaos at all times or society will burn. I think we should take some of the bronze statues of George Floyd and melt them down and create a giant statue of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd. And that should be a symbol of law and order. Maybe we should get rid of the statue of justice with her scales and her blindfold and just put that in front of jails and courthouses and things like that. The ancient Egyptians had wonderful symbols of the necessity of the state to restrain the forces of chaos. The 
the pharaohs would have the images of Egypt's traditional enemies on their shoes so that with each step, they would crush the Nubians and the Libyans and the Syrians under their feet, right? The forces of chaos have to be constantly controlled by the forces of order. And when I saw Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd, I saw the forces of order quelling the forces of chaos. And unfortunately, we did not have a strong enough political establishment to back him up. And, and, and that uh, has been very, very costly to America. The purpose of going into politics, and especially attaining the highest office in the land, the president, right, is, is to be able to step forward when there's a, a situation like that and to call bullshit and, and calm these people down and say, Derek Chauvin did nothing wrong. If you riot, I will send out the police and the police will shoot to kill. And Trump should have done that with the first BLM riot, frankly. The first riot wasn't his fault. Every subsequent riot was his fault. If he had called people out and given orders to shoot to kill, the, the number of cities that have burned, the number of people who were killed or injured, the number of livelihoods that were destroyed would have been reduced to almost nothing. But he didn't have the guts to do that. He didn't play that role that a, a leader should play. Uh, he, he loves to play the martyr. There, you know, he, he, he's Christ-like in his own imagination, right? He will take slings and arrows for us. Well, he had an opportunity to take slings and arrows and basically just a lot of criticism from people who hate him. You, you'd think he would have gotten used to that. For coming forward and saying, Derek Chauvin did nothing wrong, or simply saying, the courts need to sort this out. If you riot, you will be shot down like dogs in the street. And it would have been over. But instead, he was too weak and he allowed this to happen. It's all on Donald Trump. Anyway, I would love to see Derek Chauvin acquitted. I'd love to see those George Floyd statues in a furnace melting down and Derek Chauvin monuments with George Floyd in a suitable position being erected in their place. Folks, I've been going at this for an hour. Thank you so much. We will be back next Saturday with another episode of Countercurrence Radio. But before that, Monday on the Decameron Film Festival, I will be talking to Frody Midyord about Once Upon a Time in the West. So tune into that and then tune back in a week from today for another episode of Countercurrence Radio. I want to thank all the listeners out there. I want to thank the donors. I want to thank the moderators. We've had such a well-behaved audience but I really appreciate your moderating magic anyway. We will be back. It's been a pleasure. Take care. <laughs>